Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to remind you about our upcoming course on a biblical theology of ritual, which will be from May 10th to May 15th here in Birmingham, Alabama. This course will trace the biblical discourse of ritual from the Hebrew Bible into the New Testament to show the intricate connections between ethical behavior, embodied practices, and the knowledge produced through ritual participation. We're going to explore the link between moral behavior and ritual knowledge through the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels and the Epistles into the Church today. We're also going to discuss things like scientific knowledge, sacramental understanding, and current discussions on liturgy. We are very excited about our instructor for this course. Dr. Drew Johnson is an associate professor of biblical and theological studies at the King's College in New York City, and he's authored seven books on scripture and philosophy, his most recent being on ritual. For more information and for registration for this course, you can find a link down there in the show notes, or you can go to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and go to Courses. In this episode of the podcast, our adjunct senior fellow, Alistair Roberts, is going to discuss the many different themes of resurrection in the story of Joseph. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis podcast. My name is Alistair Roberts. Neither of my colleagues, Peter Lightheart or James Jordan, are with me today. And so in their absence, rather than continuing the series on the book of Leviticus, I thought I'd do something seasonal and discuss the topic of resurrection in the story of Joseph. I want to suggest that there are a series of resurrections within the story of Joseph, happening to four distinct characters. You may not have thought about some aspects of this story before, although it's familiar to all of us. There are many features of this story that are deep and mysterious, that reward closer attention. And within the next few minutes, I hope to highlight some of these. The story of Joseph begins in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, where we see a series of ramping tensions developing between Joseph and his brothers. It begins with Joseph shepherding the sheep of his father with his brothers from Bilhah and Zilpah, the handmaids, And he brings back a bad report, an evil report of them to his father. Following this, his father favours him over the other children and gives him a tunic of many colours. He's loved more than the others and he's favoured more than the others. And they hate him as a result and can't speak peaceably to him. Then he has a dream concerning their sheaves bowing down to his and he reports it to them. And at that point, they become even more enraged with him. They hate him even more for his dreams and for his dream and for his words to them. And then he has another dream. And this time he reports it not just to them, but to his father. And the fact that their father seems to take it seriously only increases their rage further. And at this point, they envy him. They don't just have that hatred towards him. They envy him. And that sets up the scene for the sending of Joseph to his brothers. The brothers are shepherding sheep in Shechem, and Joseph is sent by his father from the valley of Hebron to speak to his brothers, to see if things are going well with them. Now, his father may have known that they've moved on at that point, but he sends him out. 
And as we read this story, there are certain things that might alert us to something strange. There are features of this story that seem familiar. There's a father sending a son on a dangerous mission. And the son's response, here I am. The son being told, please go and do this. And then as he nears the place where he's supposed to go, we hear they saw him coming from afar. There's approaching doom. Later on, Reuben says, do not lay your hand upon the boy. Reuben playing a role that is familiar to us that we have heard before. And then at that point, they lift up their eyes and they see something, an alternative. Now this is the story of the binding of Isaac, played out in a different way. It's not so prominent, but we can hear these different elements emerging within the story. That story of the binding binding of Isaac is the story of the son that's being sent to death and then will later be brought back to life. And so we're starting to hear these sounds. Jacob sends out his son. His son says, here I am, please go. Go to a place that is very dangerous. The father presumably knows that Joseph is hated by his brothers, envied by his brothers, that they can't speak peaceably to him. And he sends him to his brothers on this dangerous mission. And they see him coming afar off. There's nearing doom. Reuben says, do not lay your hands upon the boy as the angel arrests Abraham's hand as he brings it down upon Isaac. And then finally, they lift up their eyes and see the Ishmaelites approaching, just as Abraham sees the ram under the bush. So within this story, there are patterns that are familiar to us. And it's setting up this story as the story of the son being sacrificed, of the son being brought to the point of death. Will this son be delivered or will this son be brought to his death and not recovered? There are other elements of this story that are interesting. We've seen the parallels with the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, but there's a story just before the sacrifice of Isaac that has a lot of parallels with that story. And it's the story of the sending out of Ishmael. As we read that story, we'll see some more parallels. There's sending out. Jacob sends out Joseph out of the valley of Hebron. And he goes to Shechem. In the story of Genesis chapter 21, Abraham rises early in the morning and he sends Hagar away. He sends her out. There's a mention of Shechem in chapter 37. And in chapter 21, there's the reference to the shoulder, which is the same thing, the same word. The took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. That reference to the shoulder and that reference to Shechem forms another connection. What happens after that? Hagar goes to the wilderness of Beersheba and she wanders there. She gets lost. Joseph goes and arrives in Shechem and he wanders around. He's wandering around in the field and a man meets him and says, what are you seeking? While Hagar is wandering around, she's met by an angel. And as she's met by the angel, the angel says, what ails you, Hagar? 
She casts the child down under a bush and leaves Ishmael to die. She does not want to see the death of the child. In the story of chapter 37, Joseph is cast down into a pit and the brothers seem to remove themselves to a distance so that they will not see him die. The original plan is to cast him down and when he is cast down, just leave him to expire within the pit rather than selling him. It's only when they look up and they see the Ishmaelites that that alternative plan presents itself. It mentions in chapter 37 that there is no water in the well. In chapter 21, she is sent out with bread and water, a skin of water. And it says then, and the water in the skin was used up. And at that point, she places the boy, casts the boy down under one of the shrubs. The water in the well is used up and Joseph is cast down into it. But the bread remains and in chapter 37 we see the brothers eating bread. What do they see coming in the distance? They see the Ishmaelites coming. And the Ishmaelites will be the means, the alternative to sacrificing or to destroying Joseph, to allowing him to die within the pit. And so we're seeing these patterns that resemble the original story of Ishmael and the story of Isaac. It's the story of the son that has to be sacrificed and the faith that has to be expressed by Abraham as he willingly brings his son to Mount Moriah to that site of doom. It's also the story of Ishmael, the story of the brother, the son, who is expelled from the family, who is no longer a member of the family. He's sent outside and where does he end up going? He ends up going down to Egypt and marrying there. These stories then have great similarities. Joseph is expelled from the family. He ends up with the Ishmaelites and going down to Egypt. He's associated with Ishmael who's cut off from the family. And there's a descent down to death. A descent to a realm away from the family. A descent into a pit a pit associated with death in many respects. Now, the story of Joseph is not the only story of death or seeming death. Joseph is presented as having died, having been consumed or torn apart by a wild beast. But this is not the only character. He is not the only character who seems to die within the story. At the end of the chapter 37, we read of Jacob being presented with the tunic of Joseph. He's presented with this tunic with the blood stains on it. And he's told without, he says, without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. He recognizes the tunic and then he tears his clothes and he mourns his son. And all everyone rises up, tries to comfort him, but nothing they do is enough. And he refuses to be comforted. Indeed, he says, I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And he wept for him. There's no way to console Jacob at this point. He's going down to his grave too. It seems that Joseph has gone down to his grave. And now Jacob seems to be going down to his grave. Two descents. And there's a third descent that we find in the next chapter. At the beginning of chapter 38, we read, It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. 
And this whole chapter tells the story of Judah as a story of descent, going down. So Jacob goes down, and now Judah goes down. These are the consequences of what has been done. Joseph is sent down into Egypt. Jacob, in mourning, is going to descend down into the grave. And Judah, because of his part in the conspiracy, is now descending himself. How does Judah descend? First of all, he's cut off from the rest of the brothers. He leaves the brothers. He's no longer one of the brothers in the same way. He is apart from them. They seem to, maybe they no longer listen to him. He was the one that put forward this plan and now everything has gone awry. He's sent his own way. One way or another, he leaves the brothers. And he has a number of children. But the children, one by one, they die. And there's a tragedy here playing out in, J- Joseph, in Judah's family. Judah's children are dying. And his legacy is dying. He's losing his children. Now, in the previous chapter, we hear of Jacob losing his child. And now it seems as if Judah is suffering something similar. He's been put in, put in a similar position to that of his father. And as the story plays out, we'll see further similarities. He takes a wife for his firstborn, called Tamar, and Ur, is, Ur his firstborn, is killed. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the younger brother is supposed to intervene to take Tamar and to raise up seed for his dead brother. But he fails to do that. And then he's put to death as a result of his sin. And there's one son left at this point. And Judah is unwilling to give him to Tamar. He fears that he will die also. And so many years pass. This is a story where we see time passing and gradually Judah's family descending down into death. His two children have died. His wife dies. And Tamar is in mourning. The whole house of Judah is under this pall of death. It's characterized by the loss and bereavement of these two sons, of this wife. And now you've got a widow and a widower. Tamar and Judah. And what's going to happen? This son Shelah is not going to be given to Tamar. But yet, without that, how are seed going to be raised up for the dead firstborn? How is that recovery going to occur? And Tamar comes in a mask, in a disguise, wearing a veil. And she comes to Judah as he's out at the festival celebrating sheep shearing in Timnah. And... Judah goes into her and has relations. And there's a great period, a number of verses given to negotiation about the price. What is she going to be given for this? Now, she wants a goat. She wants a kid from the flock. Or she says, or he says that he will give her a kid from the flock. But he doesn't have a kid from the flock. So in the absence of the kid from the flock, what will he give instead? He will give tokens of, as collateral. He gives his signet and his cord and the staff that is in his hand. These are significant things to give. These are signs of his rule. His signet, a sign of his authority, 
and his staff a sign of his rule. These are the tokens of his kingly office. And yet he's giving them freely to a prostitute as collateral until he gives her a kid. Now why a kid? In the previous chapter, he has presented or he's led, been part of a plot to disguise the death of Joseph. And they use a kid and the blood of a kid on the tunic of Joseph and present that to the father. So where's the kid in the next chapter? There is no kid. The kid has died. And there is this promise of a kid. And it's also the kid for Tamar. The kid that she's going to raise up from the grave to raise up a name for Ur, the firstborn who has been killed. And so there's a crisis within Judah's family, a crisis that comes in part as a result of what he did concerning Joseph. Now he finds himself in a very similar position to that of his father. And we'll see how this plays out. He finds out that Tamar is with child with by harlotry and so she's condemned to death in a very rash manner he hastily condemns her without actually examining examining the matter but then she comes out with these tokens she brings out the signet and the and the cord and the staff to whom these belong that is the one with whom i am with child please determine who these are Recognize, please. Where have we heard those words before? We hear it in the previous chapter as Judah and his brothers present Jacob with the tunic, covered with blood. Recognize, please. To whom does, to whom does this belong? It belongs to Joseph. It's the son who has seemingly been killed. And now Judah finds himself in a similar position. What is he going to do? Is he going to tell the truth? Or is he going to try and cover up his iniquity and allow this woman to be killed? He confesses the truth. And this is the first point where things start to shift. There's confession and then there's deliverance. And as a result of his confession... Tamar is saved. If Tamar were not saved, she and her children would die. The two sons that she bears within her womb. Now Judah has lost two sons. And now, as he acknowledges his truth, as the truth, as he acknowledges that Tamar is more righteous than he, two sons will be given back to him. He has lost two sons. At the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, two sons are restored to him. And his house is no longer characterised by mourning. Think what else is happening within this chapter. Judah descends from his brothers. He no longer leads them in the same way. He's left them. In the previous chapter, he was the one that was very much at the head of things. He was the one that they were listening to, the one that they were taking counsel from. And as we read the chapter, chapter 38, we see Joe, Judah's descent into death. His house is dying out. His legacy is going down to the grave. It's all characterized by death. 
and he's not taking it seriously enough. Indeed, he will give the tokens of his rule, his staff and his signet and his cord to a prostitute. He's despising his birthright, like Esau despised his birthright. He's descending down into death, and in the process, he's giving away his signs of office. He's giving away his authority. He's being stripped of his rule. And in his confession, all these things come back to him, as if by the skin of his teeth he is restored. That is the first death and resurrection that we see within this story. But it's not the only one. The story of Joseph replays the, in the story of Joseph we see a replaying of the story of the first pet. Joseph has a coat stripped from him by his brothers. And that coat is stripped and then used as evidence against him, as evidence of his death. And then he goes down into the pit as if to his death. But there's another story that follows after this that has great similarities. Joseph rises up within the land of Egypt to become uh, the main steward of the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. And within that house, he's got all this influence and there's one thing that he's not supposed to um, touch, and that's the wife of Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife is, has desire for him and keeps pleading with him day after day to lie with her. And then at one point, she grabs him by his garment and says, lie with me. What does he do at that point? He could seem to be loyal to his master and lie with his wife, cover up everything, pretend that nothing is going on. The wife would be pleased, her desire would be satisfied, and... Potiphar would need to know nothing about it. In the previous story, we've seen Joseph as someone who seems to be very faithful to his father, but maybe in a way that's designed to earn his own um, advancement. Within the story, he seems to be unwise in the way that he tells his dream, dreams to his brothers and then to his father, and seeks almost his own advancement over others. The bad report that he brings is questionable. Is that the proper thing to do in that situation? It's not entirely clear. But here, he's in a position where he could avoid all this trouble coming upon him by being unfaithful, by appearing to be faithful, but not actually being faithful. Instead, he leaves his garment in the hands of the wife of Potiphar knowing that this will be something that can be used against him, as indeed it is. And as that is used against him, he finds himself once again stripped of a garment, that garment being used against him, and ending up down in a pit. The same word that is used for the pit that he is thrown into by his brothers is used of the pit of the dungeon into which he is cast. Within the pit of the dungeon, he finds himself alongside two other prisoners. And these two prisoners are prisoners who have divergent fates. Two criminals associated with him. 
Now, as we read the story of Joseph, we'll see that there are many ways in which it might remind us of the story of Christ. In the story of Christ, we read of one who was hated by his brothers to whom he was sent. We read of one who was stripped of his garments. We need to read of one who was expelled by his brethren, betrayed by Judas or Judah, sold for pieces of silver to the Gentiles, descended into the pit, but will later return from the dead and his brethren will bow to him. In chapter 40, we see Christ in the story of Joseph. In the story of Christ, there are two criminals alongside Christ that are crucified. In the story of Joseph, there are two criminals, the baker and the cupbearer, that are with him in prison, one to be raised up and another to be brought down. And it will happen in three days. One will be raised up and the other will be raised up on a tree. He'll be hung. These are patterns that we recognize in the story of Christ as well. But Joseph's experience here is different. No longer is he the passive victim that he was in the first story, cast by his brothers into the pit, screaming for help. No, now he goes willingly, as one who is faithful to his master. It's a new way of going down into that pit. It's the same experience being played out again, but it's done differently this time. And he ends up being raised up. He's raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, becomes the second most powerful person in the land, and God uses him to bring life to others. There's another story of death and resurrection. And that's the story of Jacob. Noted that Jacob describes his experience as that of going down to the grave in mourning. That when he sees that his beloved son is seemingly dead, there is no consoling him. There is no recovery for him. And the recovery of Jacob does not happen for many other chapters. As we read the story of Judah, we see that Judah is placed in a similar position as he placed his father in. And through confession, his dead house is restored to him. And once again, he is placed in a position of rule. In the story of Joseph, we see he plays out that story of being put in the pit again, this time being faithful as this garment is taken from him, no longer just a passive victim, but one who is a willing and faithful person. And the story of Jacob is one in which he is raised up in a different way. He's raised up as he is prepared to let the last son go. And as he lets his last son go, he gets everyone back. I noted the story of Judah and the story of Judah that has parallels with the story of Jacob and the position he put his father in. Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah. And he fails to give Shelah to Tamar and as a result, death hangs over his family. Tamar is the scapegoat. She's the one who's blamed for the death of the children. And yet, it's in giving the child, finally, to the one who has the the masked person, that he will be raised up. 
Jacob finds himself in a similar position. He loses his son, Joseph. Then he sends his sons to Egypt, and one of them is kept there, Simeon. He's lost two sons. Will he send the third son that's asked of him? Will he send Benjamin? Will he send Benjamin willingly to this masked man in faith that God will bring him back? When he sends that last son, his whole house is restored to him. Not just Benjamin, not just Simeon, but Joseph as well. And when Jacob finds out that Joseph is alive, his response is a powerful one. He hears that Joseph is alive and his response is that when he hears these words, the spirit of Jacob the father revives. In chapter 45, verse 27, Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. It's a powerful statement. It's a statement that also represents a transition in Jacob's identity. Jacob has seemed to have lost his identity at this point. He's lost the son that he loves. And then when his spirit revives, it says, then Israel said. Israel, that nation name. Not just Jacob, the name of the individual, but Israel, the name that represents Jacob as the head of a people. When he hears about the life that Joseph is alive, he can speak of himself, he can be spoken of as Israel once more. It's as if it's life from the dead. Then God appears to Jacob at the beginning of chapter 46, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. It's another story of death and resurrection, this time anticipated in the future. A story of deliverance from the land of Egypt. They will go down. There is an entrance into a position of death. But then God will raise them up from there and restore them. At the very end of the book of Genesis, we see this alluded to. The final words of the book of Genesis concern the death of Joseph and Joseph's instructions to his brothers. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph dies, but he does not want his bones to remain in Egypt. The bringing up of Joseph's bones and the restoration of Joseph to the land, finally, after all those years being in the land of Egypt, finally he'll be restored to the promised land. It's death and its resurrection. It's at that point that the story of Joseph will have come full circle. We saw him being sent out from the valley of Hebron 
and now he will be restored to the land, as in the Exodus the people of Israel take the bones of Joseph and leave Egypt with them and bring them finally into the promised land. The story then of Joseph contains three deaths and resurrections. The death and the resurrection of Judah and his household. Judah who loses his, who sacrifices his kingship as it were, giving the tokens to the prostitute and only receiving them back as he confesses the truth, receiving back those two sons, the two sons that he had lost. We see it in the story of Joseph, as Joseph replays the story of being sent down into the pit, but now in a faithful way, and then he's raised up, just as he tells the, just as he tells the cupbearer, there's another symbol of resurrection there, raised up on the third day. And then there's the story of Jacob. The story of Jacob who went down, was going down to his grave in sorrow and mourning for the lost son. And then his spirit revives. He's Israel once more. God will send him into Egypt, but he will rise up a mighty people from that land. And his bones will be restored to the land from which he came. There may, however, be one further story of death and resurrection in this story. And that, I believe, is the story of Rachel. Now you may say, Rachel has already died. A number of years ago, she's died in giving birth to Benjamin. How could it be that she dies and, is ru- and rises again? As you read the story of Rachel, you see that there is a tragic foreshadowing of her fate. She dies in bleeding out as she gives birth to Benjamin. She dies and two of her sons almost die. Joseph is seemingly lost and Benjamin is almost lost as well. But there's a foreshadowing of this and the foreshadowing occurs as she leaves the house of her father Laban and she takes the household gods, the teraphim of Laban and she goes and she hides them in the camel's bag and as she's sitting upon it, she says that she is in her the way of women is with her, and so if she were to get up, all you'd see is bloodied garments. She takes the teraphim, and what happens at that point is there's a statement of death, a judgment of death proclaimed by Joseph, by Jacob, that the person with whom the teraphim are found should surely die. It's a rash vow, and the culprit is not truly found. But that judgment of death foreshadows her actual death. She will die in bloody childbirth. But there's more that happens. The fate of her two children seems to recall the death of Rachel. Where does that event occur? The event of the teraphim. It happens in the area of Gilead. In chapter 37, the Ishmaelites are coming from Gilead on camels. These are things that we remember from that earlier story. It's as if Gilead and uh, Laban is coming to take back what is owed to him. Rachel has died and now her children must die. 
Joseph first. When Jacob sees the bloodied garment of Joseph, he says, Toroph, Toraph. He refers to the fact that Joseph is surely torn to pieces. And those words recall teraphim. Toroph, Toraph, teraphim. So there's the camels from Gilead and there's the torn sun, the bloodied garment. What else is there? On three occasions within the story of Genesis, we see a rash vow made to kill someone. On the first occasion, it's in the story of Rachel, as Rachel is as Jacob is pursued by Laban, and as Jacob declares that the person with whom the teraphim are should surely be put to death. And that, of course, is Rachel. On the second occasion, it's in the story of Judah and Tamar, as Judah rashly declares that Tamar should be put to death. And then finally, there's one other occurrence, and that's in the story of Benjamin. The brothers declare that the person with whom the cup is found, that that person should surely be put to death. It's a rash vow to put, to put someone to death. And what is the cup? It's an instrument of divination, just as the teraphim are. Rachel was pursued by her, by her father in order to recover the teraphim, the means of divination. And there was a rash vow to put the one with whom it was found to death. Her son, Benjamin, is pursued for possessing the cup, the cup that's a means of divination. And again, there's a rash vow to kill someone. Although something different happens on this occasion. It's discovered with whom it, with whom it belongs. And there is intercession made. Judah, in the story of Tamar, intervenes and says, you are more righteous than I, and the sentence is not carried out. In the story of Benjamin, Judah intercedes once again, and the sentence is not carried out. What we see is Rachel and her children being recovered, being saved. Not just Joseph, but Benjamin. Both of them are recovered. And on this occasion, it's by Judah. Judah, who now is not the one who's planning to cover up, but the one who's planning to reveal, the one who's planning to confess, to acknowledge what he has done. And through that confession, there is a resurrection. The family that has seemed to go down to death is restored to Jacob. Judah's family is restored. Joseph is restored as if from the dead. And Rachel and her children are brought back to life. The story of Joseph then is a story of resurrection, a story of deaths and a story of God bringing up from the grave. It ends with the story of burial, the burial of Jacob and the burial of Joseph and instructions concerning their bones. God will one day bring them up. As we read this story then, we should see a foreshadowing of something that we find in the New Testament. 
As we read the story there, we are reading the story of the son of Joseph, one who descends into the grave and will rise up, one who is crucified with two criminals, one who will be with him in paradise that very day, and the other who will descend into the pit. The story of Christ is the story of another one who is raised up to the right hand to rule. The story of Christ is another one who will bring deliverance to his brethren, the brethren who rejected him. When Stephen gives his sermon in the book of Acts, he tells the story of Joseph as a foreshadowing of the story of Christ, a story of two visitations, as Joseph first visits his brothers and is rejected by them and sent into slavery in Egypt, and the second time where he visits them for salvation. Christ is rejected by his brothers, but then he comes again in the ministry of the church so that any who receive his message will be delivered. And in the story of Christ, the son of Joseph, we have all these promises fulfilled. We have all these stories brought to their climax. A story that has the tears of Rachel being made fruitful. At the beginning of the book of Matthew in chapter 2, we see a reference back to Micah chapter 5. And in the context of Micah 5, it's the tears of Rachel. The tears of Rachel who's struggling to give birth and who dies on the way to Bethlehem. But Mary reaches Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, Ephrath, that place which was associated with the death of the matriarch, struggling to give birth to this son who would bring forth, forth the first king, we find the birth of that great king, the Messiah. Later on in that chapter, we have a reference to Jeremiah 31, 15, the tears of Rachel that her children are no more. And in that chapter, God promises that her children will be brought back. And the very next verse in Matthew, Christ returns from the land of Egypt. He is brought back. He is the token of the returned chil children of Rachel. Rachel who mourns the loss of Benjamin and Joseph. And now in the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who interceded for her sons, the one who repented of his action towards her other son. In her, in him, that legacy is being restored. In Christ, we also see the legacy of Judah being presented that Judah, who gave up those tokens of kingship and was going down to the grave, losing all his children, through those children born at the end of chapter 38, God will raise up this new people. God will raise up his son. We see the story of Joseph. Joseph, who goes down to Egypt and who brings back up the people as a mighty nation. Christ is brought by his father Joseph down into Egypt and he is restored to the land. And the story of Jacob, the story of a family that seemed lost, of the children that seem to be gone and cannot be recovered. In Christ, he raises up Israel as he dies and is brought back to life. In Genesis, then, we are seeing a foreshadowing of events that we see in the life of Christ. And when we read 
the life of Christ and consider what he has done, the resurrection that he has brought about, we can hear the echoes of a vast narrative behind that, a story of tragedy and sorrow and loss made whole in the Son of God. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.